And it just strikes me how much we have this tendency in our culture to forget that it is reciprocal. And you must take care of the other people around you as much as they you want them to take care of you. And just how much of a dynamic, constant exchange that is. And to keep more of it in mind, it's not just about you. Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I am your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology. We are the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ojai, California, this is the podcast for you the ambitious professional who simply wants an advantage. And now you won't settle for an ordinary life. You want real results, real satisfaction, not just at work, not just in your career, but in every area of your life. Our primary feature today is with Angela Maharg, CEO of Datasfy, headquartered in Toronto, Canada. Datasfy was founded specifically and exclusively to offer a solution for business owners who use QuickBooks to build customized reports that QuickBooks can't provide. Having realized she could never work enough hours to meet her income goals, Angela speaks about how a simple solution can scale into a business that is truly satisfying. Angela's journey teaches us a great deal about how we have grown indifferent to the fundamentals of reciprocation. To follow in our Guru Talk, co-founder Kirkland Tibbles talks about having authentic gratitude for the opportunities we all have to live as we aspire. This talk is to a group of more advanced students, and you may not understand all the terms we use, but you'll certainly be impacted by the power of this message. All right, here's the feature. I'm here with Angela Maharg. She is the founder and CEO of Datasfy. Datasfy or Datasfy? Datasfy. Datasfy. It's very, a very deliberate joining of two words, data and satisfy. Imagine being satisfied with your data. <laughs> very good. And, uh, you know, your tagline's also great. Do what counts. Obviously, count has many meetings here. Um, and you founded this as a very specific and exclusive offer because you found many business owners who use QuickBooks don't get the reports that they need, right? That's correct. When I started to study with Influence Ecology four and a half years ago, I was a very competent, highly regarded specialist in a software application called Crystal Reports. And it was great. I did lots of great projects with top organizations around the world. I made good money. Um, but I knew I could never scale it up. I couldn't go beyond myself because it was really hard to transfer knowledge. I remember when you and I first spoke during my interview for the Fundamentals of Transaction. I said, I, I, I just don't know how to transfer what I know because I know so much. I don't even know how I know what I know anymore. Mm. And how am I going to turn that into an enterprise, into a real business? Not just, I was fooling myself to be, you know, truth be told. I. I kind of I pretended it was a business, but it was really, I was just working for other companies. Mm-hmm. And I had a, an opportunity to do a project, and I don't know if it's coincidental or not, it was for Influence Ecology. And the CFO asked me if I could do a custom split commission report. 
so that he didn't have to spend half a day every two weeks trying to get the commission reports working properly and easy and single click. And I thought, no big deal. I've been working on major systems my entire career, almost two decades at that point. And it's just QuickBooks. How hard could it be? <laughs> Boy, did I get <laughs> edumacated. <laughs> uh, no, it just, I, I couldn't believe how hard it was to get at the information and get it out the way uh, a customer might need it. Because hmm. everyone needs to look at things differently. And I was shocked. It was very, very difficult. And so I recognized an opportunity at that time. But I thought, well, there's no, if there's no other easier way to do it, I want to steer clear of this for the rest of my life. And hmm. then uh, somebody else has invented a better way to get at the data. And when I saw it, I, it was so easy for me to see I could take my specialized two decades worth of knowledge, combine it with this one solution, and the five million companies using QuickBooks in America alone, there's an opportunity there. And sure enough, customers keep coming. Mm. There's so much good stuff in what you just said. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna dig in just a little bit. So there's a couple of things in there. Specialization, right? It, you speak quite a bit to specialization. But I wanna go back to when you and I were talking and and we were doing the interview you were applying for influence ecology and you were saying something about what you were pretending there. What did you mean? Well, because I had been an independent or freelance contractor and consultant for you know 16 years or 17 years at that time, I really thought of myself as something a little special. <laughs> and I, you know, people would pay my invoices. I've never had a customer not pay me ever and that's pretty extraordinary so I thought that I was running a little business but it was just me doing work it wasn't a business per se it was just me yeah, it was I a, was a hired like a gun. consultant you're a, a consultant fundamentally yeah, I was a hired yeah. gun I was very much appreciated for the the help that I provided but that was the limit I couldn't produce any more than that you know, when I got to my early 40s, I thought, wow, I can't even sit in front of a computer. The number of hours I used to when I was 26 or 28, there's a real limit here to what I can produce. So it wasn't a business. It wasn't scalable. And right. I finally got to tell the truth to myself about that. Good. I think that's the point that I wanted to go to next, that it wasn't scalable. Um, and not everybody cares about a business being scalable, right? So what was it that had you begin to be concerned for it being scalable or not? The first thing was that whole issue about not being able to, to work as many hours as I used to. So there was a certain capacity limit, and I was it. <laughs> so I, could, I was finding it, even if I started charging project-based fees instead of hourly rates, it still wasn't, I could never quite reach my financial aims. I had debt to pay off. I had no savings. You know, I just kind of, it all worked out, but I didn't have a plan and it was never going to get bigger. Mm. And I really needed to take care of my finances, but also I needed to take care of my health. Not being, you know, when your body starts to get a little more tight, your back's a little more tight and you just can't sit for six, eight, 10, 12 hours, you really have to work smarter. And so I knew I needed a way to work smarter and have other people who like to do certain kinds of work more than I do let them have at it, and I focus on other things that I really like to do and really do well. I think I'm going to just ask you a little bit about you know, the, the naivete, the 
you know, in the beginning, as many people who study with us find, they, they discover that they're naive. They discover that they, they don't have a pathway. They don't have a plan. They're hoping and so forth. Oftentimes, you know, what guides people in their 20s and 30s, we find, is, is a bit of, you know, magical thinking. And it'll turn out and hope and finger crossing and the like. What did you discover about that for yourself when you started working here? Things have always just kind of worked out for me. I never struggled to, you know, earn some money and be independent and have a place of my own or travel. And um, in my independent freelance consulting and contracting days, over those, you know, 17 years or so, I had only two, three-month periods where I couldn't find any work in my area of specialty, which is quite extraordinary. But there were some questions that we were asked both in the application process and in the fundamentals program about how much money do you actually need and here's what, here are the points to consider when you make this calculation. I had never done that kind of work before, never done that kind of thinking. And it, it's, I admit to coming from some privilege. You know, there's an inheritance that's highly likely to come my way before long. And, but I've never wanted to depend on that. That said, did I have any savings? Did I think about how to, to get to take care of myself? No, I never did because things just kind of worked out and I just I always had just enough money and I always went on good trips and I never said no. It was always a play now, pay later kind of mentality. And I started to realize, wow, I'm now in my early 40s. I don't have that much time left that I can work, and I have a lot less that I really want to work. And you know what I mean by have to work for revenue and income. Uh, and it just started to be a, a wake-up call. And and also, how much more money I realized that I needed if given the kind of lifestyle I would like to live. <laughs> it's not so much more extravagant than what I do now, but I really love to travel. And it would be nice to be able to just pack up and go whenever I want. I can't do that right now. What do I really need to have in place to be able to do that? I finally started to ask the question and answer the question. That's really great. In your, in your life's journey, what are some of the things you'd consider to be your life's lessons that you'd love to share? And what matters to you? What would you want people to walk away with if they listen to you today? If I was going to go back... And knowing what I know now, um, what I didn't understand was the effects that stress have on the body. Stress from all manner of things. Stress from not getting enough sleep, not eating enough fresh vegetables or eating too much sugar. F stress from family issues. Stress from exercise. Stress from travel. Because when you're young, you don't feel it the same way. And I've started to feel it and feel it hard. And I've had to really, really attend to my health these last couple of years because I felt my stamina was just disappearing and it was a concern. And my body's getting tight and I need to do special stretching and uh, work, get specialized help to, to just get me back to zero, let alone get ahead of the game. So if I had known that it, it kind of sneaks up on you like that, I would have attended to it better. I would have started yoga much sooner. Mm. And... Uh, learn how to develop a daily practice for walking, jogging, yoga, that kind of thing, just because it's, it works over time. And it's, it, I, gosh, I wish I could take one pill and have be done with it. 
but <laughs> it is a deliberate practice over time. And the sooner you start, the less hard you have to work when it starts to really get harder. Uh, you know, you and deliberate practice come to mind. Uh, you're very articulate. You're very smart. You're very, you, know, you seem rather sophisticated and so forth. And it sounds like, as you said before, you know, maybe there was some means and, you you know, things have generally turned out. Here's my big question. How come influence ecology then? How come, how come this and how come you've been participating for so long? You know, life seems pretty, you know, fine. How come you're participating here? How come you're studying here? Uh, I, well, one thing about this uh, family of means that I have come from is my parents were always all about lifelong study. They were always taking courses of different sorts, whether it was the sailing and power squadron boating course, or it was an art course, or it was constant self-development. And it just seems natural for me to do that. But why specifically influence ecology is I wanted a real dose of mm. reality. And I like a constant and consistent check-in with reality. So for me to keep participating means I keep getting value out of it. That's for darn sure. I get a lot of value. I, get, I learn something new because we review things. I'm, I had to relearn how to study. For me, it's I can read a book and remember so much of it that I kind of got away with a lot during my schooling, my formal education. With the regurgitation and, of just facts and yeah, things, well, and yeah, yeah. But I remember stuff, and I put I I I um I make correlations, and I I, I understand things fairly easily. So not having had to work at it was not maybe the best thing, as it turns out, mm. <laughs> because practicing over time, studying rereading things, talking about how to apply the principles that we learn, working with a study group and helping someone else, having them help me is far more valuable than I could have anticipated. I, I mean, I've made a lot of friends in this, in this group of people. Uh, there's some really smart, really wonderful people who are up to something, and that's the kind of people I like to be around. And I wish there were more of them in Toronto, because that's, and I've actually worked hard to build a membership in influence ecology here um, in Canada and Toronto in particular. And it's growing slowly but surely, but I want to connect on that level. And so I keep practicing, I keep studying, I keep being on calls. Every time I'm on a call, I learn something new because I don't want to waste my time. And I'm, my time is never wasted. And, and so the, the study and practice, um, so you said your parents were very... Uh, much lifelong learners and developing themselves and 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 the like and you do too in, in terms of study and practice how come how come you want to study and practice stuff i mean i know why i do i'm just asking you how come i'm so never satisfied with the status quo <laughs> <laughs> i just want to be better i want uh, to experience more i i feel like life gets smaller when i'm not reading and learning and meeting new people so it's quite the ideal uh, program for that, really. And w wanting to get better, I, you know, I was, uh, I was talking with somebody just a couple of days ago and we were speaking about ambition. There's an aspect of what you point to that's about ambition, striving towards something, not being mediocre, not settling, living life to the fullest and, and the like. And it's funny because 
in most movies, when I see an, an ambitious character in a movie, they're often a villain. You know, like they're a they're they're some jerk who only cares about money, who only cares about their own goals at this at the cost of everything and everyone else. <laughs> you know, that, that kind of character. And they're often somebody that seems to be callous and without feeling or, you know, all that different kind of stuff. You sound like an ambitious person when I listen to you, but certainly not that kind of character. What would you say to people who are ambitious and want to find a way to nurture that ambition, especially in a world where people kind of poo-poo it? You know, I think in Australia, New Zealand, in fact, uh, there's reference to the tall poppy syndrome you know don't stick out don't stand out don't raise a stink and so forth what would you say to nurturing one's ambition well i think the general marketplace has conflated characteristics of evil with the pursuit of money and it's just so off base it's just wrong because if you're going to operate in our modern society and you want to live a decent good life, and I don't mean extravagant, I just mean you have your needs taken care of now and into the future. You have to know how to work the system. You have to know how to work. You have to know how to make requests. You have to know how to have people accept your ideas and get on board. You have to learn how to learn. You have to learn how to train others. There's so much to it. It's like you could never possibly get there with all of it, but to make money wrong or ambitious wrong, it's kind of just misguided, in my view. I feel very fortunate to to be a woman in this day and age who was free to choose not to have kids or get married because it, there was no drive, there wasn't a desire to do that because of what the culture says, and to be well-educated. I went to an all-girls high school, a private school, that where we had to take on the leadership role. So it's just always been a natural expression for me to, to strive towards something. Because if you're not going towards something, what are you doing? Now, now, I know not everyone thinks like that. And the truth is, when I was a lot younger and in my, my teens and 20s, I had some grand visions of the difference I was going to make in the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and not that people shouldn't have those kinds of dreams. I thought I was going to be part of causing peace in Ireland, and I thought I was going to somehow put together and fund like a permanent arts education program across Canada so that every child had access to music and drama and dance and art, because and, I, I found those things to be extremely valuable to my own development. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying I'm not going to do those things, but what I really, really get a lot out of right now is is that my company, we do good work together, and our customers are really, really happy with the work we do because it makes their lives easier. Somehow, the, the grand vision of this massive difference-making thing that I was going to do is tempered now with what it is to live life in modern society and how what things you have to take care of. And, and now I find simpler things a lot more satisfying. You know, so I love what you're saying because, you know, I've had many, many conversations with people about uh, my own passion for helping entrepreneurs, business owners, uh, ambitious people live really, really satisfying lives. And I don't mean satisfying like, you know, some guru sitting atop a mountain declaring his satisfaction or someone who lives a satisfying life because they were Mother Teresa and sacrificed everything but made a, a difference by God, you know, that sort of thing. But 
when somebody has the kind of income to live as they choose, when somebody has the security to know that they're going to be able to live well now and into the future, when somebody isn't working that much and still doing that, and they're able to take care of their health, and they're able to, you know, spend time with their family and take vacations and and play and, you know, experience all kinds of other aspects of life, that's a very, very satisfying and fulfilling life. And and one of the things I think is very true about you, I was thinking about uh, this a little earlier, is my experience of you and your journey, watching you and and uh, being part of many conversations with you and in, in programs over over time, is that you're building a group of people around you. You know, a, I'll call it a small army. I don't know if it'll stay small for very long, but you're building a small army around you of really, really great help. People that are really satisfied. Every every mission, every cause, every everything that ever matters starts with a very small group of people. And I watch that happening with you. I think what you're saying is dead on, and I, I've had the same sort of experience. In fact, I would say, and this was another thing I was going to ask you about, you know, going back to those three pillars I, I, I spoke to a little bit earlier, I said something about the three things that are so fundamental to what we teach that's so different is we, we do talk about rational thought versus magical thinking. We do talk about people being ambitious as opposed to perhaps living as a victim or uh, in despair or something else. And we do talk a lot about the transactional whole, you know, all of it, you know, that you're not separate from your biology and your environment and, and so forth. And in listening to you, it's very clear that you embody those things and have come to see that those big, sexy, uh, sort of, I don't know, they pull at your heart and soul and mind, those big, sexy futures are wonderful ideas and concepts and ought to be nurtured and ought to, you know, that ought to be gasoline poured on them. But not at the expense of everything else, not at the expense of your health, not at the expense of your money, not at the expense of your future. Would you agree? I would. You know, something that struck me about one of the words that we use carefully or perhaps distinctly in our study is the word autonomy. Mm. And the general definition is freedom from external control or influence and independence. And that's the, the general definition, but in our study, we define it as having more help than you need. So my parents are aging and not particularly well, and there's a number of different health and issues, both physical and mental. It strikes me that one of my parents has always had a pleasing personality, and one has had about the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> and and my the one that has the, the pleasing more contented personality. It's so easy to help him. But the one who doesn't have the pleasing personality, who has the difficult personality and the very judgmental personality and the super opinionated personality, it's almost impossible to help or, or to get help that will stay and keep, keep giving the help that is needed. Mm. And it just strikes me how much we have this tendency in our culture to forget that it is reciprocal. And you must take care of the other people around you as much as they you want them to take care of you. And just how much of a dynamic, constant exchange that is. And to keep more of it in mind, it's not just about you. And I watch people in, um, in the city. It's more so in the city, people become indifferent 
because there's so much going on around them and you can just ignore so much. And if you can just pay for something, you don't even feel like you have to be nice to the person who's going to deliver it to you. But I watch this. People will walk right out of a Starbucks and right into the stream of sidewalk traffic and not even look to see if anyone's already there. This is a little soapbox moment. That drives me crazy because it means that you've you've closed down your view of what's around you so much that you're going to cause damage. It's dangerous. And it's dangerous to live in a world like that and not take into account the other things that are happening in your world, in your environment, in your community. And we need help. The coffee you got at Starbucks, it wasn't just one person who gave it to you. There's a lot involved to get you that cup of coffee. And if you can keep that in mind, the scale of it is somewhat overwhelming sometimes and perhaps daunting, but it keeps you humble. That's the thing I've really appreciated about this study is to, it's not just me, it's like, who else am I involving in this what is it they need what's important to them what's important to me and i am so not talking about being a pushover or it's not about being nice it's about just plain old consideration i love that it's something that strikes me about i think we forget we get indifferent we take stuff for granted and there's a whole lot more to it it's great angela i appreciate that that's so far been one of my favorite parts of this conversation so far (laughs) So uh, how do you think how do you think we got this way? Indifferent? Well, you know, you speak about indifference for sure. Uh, and some of that may be obvious. You know, we're we're you know, we're not a small village of 12 people who, you know, I need to make sure that I can have your eggs next Thursday, so I'm going to be, you know, it's not like that anymore. We live in massive cities and so forth. So yes, indifferent, but we now are in a place where we don't consider that our relationships with the entirety of those around us is a reciprocal one. Any thoughts about how we got there? Yeah, how did we get there? Um, One of the books that we're studying in the Mechanics and Practice 2 program is, it's called Money in the Modern Mind by Gianfranco Poggi. I just love Italian names. (laughs) Um, It's his reflections and thoughts on the philosophy of money by Georg Simmel. So it's, it's kind of this dense study and about money, the philosophy of money. And this whole notion of money as an institution, it it separates us because we just use money as an exchange medium. You know, we don't barter stuff so much anymore. Although there are organizations that have gone back to bartering, it's not commonplace. This whole world, this money culture that we live in, and and it makes a lot of sense. It makes transactions, it makes exchanges totally possible. But it separates us from from people, from each other, in a way that I think is unex. Maybe we didn't plan for. It quantifies things. It makes things really objective, and then we forget about everything that went into the acquisition of an object, uh, a service. You know, even like you said, the, the eggs. We forget we had to tend to those chickens and make sure they're healthy and make sure they get the right food and that the foxes get into that hen house. And there's a lot that we aren't party to. We don't observe it. We don't experience it. So we think it's clean and simple. And money makes things clean and simple, but it makes us indifferent too. Yeah, that I, I love both. I love all of that that we're studying there. Um and uh I'm I'm watching for myself that kind of forgetting that we created a tool to simplify the transaction and, you know, the indifference that it does in fact produce. Um, and 
it's my experience that in this study we we, we become extremely aware of just how reciprocal our transacting is, just how much it is about you and I working together to increase the opportunities, increase the odds of us both having the lives that we imagine and doing so not just you, you, me, but the, you know, the groups that we're in, the families, the communities, the cities, and so forth. Do you find, you know, the the tendency to think about autonomy in the way that we do? Do you think that that's difficult for people? And if so, how come? Hmm. I don't know, necessarily think it's difficult for people. I just think it's not even in the realm of, of consideration. Do you think they find it difficult behaviorally? Uh, on every one of our Fundamentals of Transaction programs, in one of the sessions, we have a conversation about autonomy, and we ask people about autonomy, and everyone says something quite the same. They refer to autonomy as independence, and then we state what you've already stated, that autonomy is having more help than you need. It's a surplus of help. It's a having lots of people willing to help around you. Um, and mostly that comes because you've been, you know, you've placed a deposit in the bank of reciprocation. You've offered great help. You are great help. You're valuable help. Your help is clear and so forth. I, I think with money, the way that we the way that we're now related to money, we perhaps don't think of placing a deposit into the bank of reciprocation. Um, we just simply, you know, what do I want? What do I need? <laughs> and go get it if, if I can afford it. it. But then there's this whole notion of, of people who think that if they could live off the grid, they'd be so happy and satisfied. Oh you know, they'd have a Movement. place out in the woods. Maybe they'd have a solar panel or maybe they'd have a, I don't really know, but they'd have trees to chop down and they could hunt for their food or like that. But if you really think about what your day-to-day -day life is like, when, if you were living off the grid and you could depend on no one else, all you would do is be hunting for your food, preparing food, storing food, making sure you had shelter, making sure the shelter didn't burn down, make, you know, like all you would do is labor. That's it. You have no time for anything else. So it's a misguided notion, this thing about autonomy and being off the grid or completely independent. It's just misguided. It's just not accurate. And even if you don't build up the bank of reciprocation, you can buy what you need with money. But if you keep messing with the relationships, you're still going to find you have trouble because right. money won't get you everywhere. It can get you a lot. It can make things easy. But if, if you're not taking care of people and relationships along the way, it's going to turn against you. All right. Well, Angela, it has been fantastic to spend some time with you. Thank you for being a really great customer of Influence Ecology, and thank you for what you contributed today. Uh, we hope there are some takeaways here in, in what we've meandered about, uh, but I've enjoyed the conversation immensely, and I really, really appreciate your time. Thanks, John. It's my pleasure, and it's always valuable for me to reflect on what I have learned uh, so that I can solidify or consolidate that and now move on to the next thing that there is to learn and master. So thank you. Angela's final comment illustrates what I love most about her. She is an example of a tenacious student who simply continues to study, to practice, and to apply. She exemplifies the determination many of our customers have to live an ambitious and satisfying life. And it's just been a pleasure to watch her journey. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd recommend you listen to episode three with Trisha Tyler. 
as she does a really good job talking about increasing your value and at the same time decreasing the cost you are to other people. If you'd like to connect with Angela, you can find a link to her company, Datisfy, in the show notes for this podcast. As I said earlier in our Guru Talk, we listen in on a webinar led by co-founder Kirkland Tibbles, where he talks about having authentic gratitude for the opportunities we all have. Now remember, this is a talk to a group of more advanced students, so you may not understand all the terms we use. However, I know you will be impacted by the message here. Not only does Kirkland demonstrate how you might complete a transaction, but also how important it is to remember the commitments and ethics you had when you mapped out that transaction before ever going live with it. This talk begins with Daphne, one of our Australian members, asking a question about Kirkland's famous thank you notes and why Kirkland offered a thank you to a Hollywood executive who had just canceled a big, important meeting and opportunity. I guess my comment, I was really interested, um, Kirkland, in what you said about um, your thank you notes after your um, Ohio experience. And what I'd just be interested in terms of a comment is how you integrate your thank you notes with um, high cost customers and commitment. Well, it, the, the first thing is that it's not a ploy. It's, if, if, for example, when I, was, when I was on my way to Los Angeles to meet with a studio exec and found out, you know, as I'm almost there, that they, they not only canceled the meeting, the transaction would be complete because they they've already made up their mind it wasn't going to be us. And it happened within you know, just about an hour before the meeting. And so it... it in that moment, I it took me a bit. I had you know I had to go meet with a friend of mine in Los Angeles, kind of get it off my chest a little bit. But I, I knew not to let the lizard respond. I knew that that what I could trust was back when I invented the moves and phases of this transaction from the very beginning. I was in a good space. I was in the proper mood to map that transaction. I'm going to trust the guy that was calm and thinking properly back when this thing went into a manual and I'm going to go trust that mood and those attitudes and those ethics for the, the directed activity called the condition of transaction for completion. And when I got back, I knew that that move to make was to be grateful for the opportunity in the first place. And, I, and it's not a ploy. I am truly grateful for any opportunity another human being will give me to just sit and listen to what I have to offer, period. And if I can't find gratitude in that, I probably ought to be doing something else. Not to mention the things that I learned along the way. Now, at the same exact time, there is always that the move of reciprocation, the weapon of reciprocation commitment and consistency and authority in play. And my grandmother said that, that, and I learned a long time ago, that the high road is called the high road for a reason. And that is where I want to move as often as I possibly can and take that high road. And yes, I also recognize that with the weapon of reciprocation, those thank you notes come dressed up with all kinds of goodies. Sometimes the phone rings and says, and this has happened a lot. 
I have never had anybody thank me for telling them no. And believe me, Mr. Tibbles, you are on the list for the next time we do something like this. But if I made that move without the authentic, ethical meaning of gratefulness in that thank you note, I submit to you that while it might work every now and then, it will not carry the day. It will just be a ploy. Now, let me tell you something else that that, that does for me. Is it, it brings me back to earth about the opportunities that we have right now in our society that a lot of people don't have. And when we lose that sense of gratitude and humility, we're in trouble. When we're so arrogant that we think that someone owes us an opportunity to pitch our wares and make our offers known, we are in serious trouble as a society. And, and transactionalism is that ethic that we recognize continually that we are in a reciprocal relationship with one another. And if we are going to treat people any other way, then maybe we should just reconsider what we're doing here in the first place. And influence ecology recognizes that. And the moves and phases, the conditions of transaction are invented first and foremost with those aims in mind. John Patterson's aims for his aesthetics, fitness, the environment, and the legacy of this company almost demand that we move powerfully in these conditions of transaction. The, the fact that Mariki works for this company means that I need to do the very best I can, as authentically as I can, to take care of the people who are willing to just listen. And we're not going to win every time anyway. So it, it goes into the next piece of what I want to talk about, and that is that we, if we go back to our aims in each condition of life, we're going to see how necessary it is to stop long enough to reflect and work on our enterprise and personal aims, not always in them. And while I, listen, I'd love to give them a piece of my mind, the time, energy, and effort it took to get ready, build this beautiful presentation. I spent a ton of money on that presentation. I was on my way to the studio. I had people meeting me there, and they canceled an hour before the meeting and said, oh, by the way, we aren't even going to do it anymore. But that's not when I invent the transaction. You don't reinvent the transaction in the heat of the moment. You rely on the standards and the ethics of when we sat down, when we slowed down long enough to put this stuff together in the first place in the cool head of the offices of influence ecology or in my backyard petting my dog when I was in the right space to build this thing and map it. That's what you trust. Well, I got on my soapbox there, John. In our next episode, we interview John Bajent of Christ Church Property Projects. John Bajent had to start over at age 57. As a property developer, he lost everything in the global financial crisis and then recovered only to lose it all again in the Christ Church earthquakes that caused widespread damage in New Zealand's second largest urban area. He's not only overcome what would sink most people, he continues to thrive. 4.37 a.m., I got woken up, literally shaken out of bed. Didn't really know what's going on, but then we, we quickly understood that, oh, this is a big earthquake. Uh, didn't realize the full extent of that. Um, 
but it, it was 7.1, I think, on the Richter scale, uh, not far from, from Christchurch, uh, and, and it caused a problem. And in fact, I was part of a consulting, a business consulting uh, practice at the time. Uh, we actually never went back to our building. If you'd like to know more about influence ecology and our approach, check out our webinar, Ambitious Living, The Eight Defining Principles. The webinar is available globally. We'll teach you the core principles practiced by the most successful and effective men and women we know. This webinar is for those who aspire to an influential life that provides measurable satisfaction for themselves, their family, and their organizations. This webinar is specifically designed for those who don't want to sacrifice a well-balanced life for superior financial rewards. They want it all. To find out more, you can find the link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word AMBITION to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please find us on iTunes and subscribe, review, like, and share. Help to get the word out and make this podcast a huge success. Thank you for another great episode of the Influence Ecology Podcast. I'm your host, John Patterson. I want to thank our guest, Angela Mahark, for so many great lessons. This podcast is made possible by the brilliant work of the Influence Ecology staff, mentors, and members around the world. We're also grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30-plus years of specialized study and practice that makes all this possible. And finally... Thanks to our producer, Jason Kelly and Marcus Bell. Editing and music by Bell Ringer Productions. Music supervision by Dashley LeCorps and Marcus Bell.